right. Hello and welcome. This is uh, Dylan with Eat Wild, and I want to invite you to join me for probably the 14th or 15th podcast we've done. I've been on a bit of a hiatus here trying to um, put together a podcast, mostly because it's been fishing season, hunting season, and it's hard to find time to um, sit down with my friends and interesting people to uh, put something like this together. But uh, tonight's been a fun night. Uh, I'm sitting down with uh, Tommy and Will, who are close friends of mine, and uh, they've just returned from a successful elk hunt, and I thought it would be a good opportunity for us to uh, do a bit of a podcast, talk about their hunt, and probably the most interesting part is their journey to becoming successful elk hunters. Uh, Both Tommy and Will are (coughs) new hunters, and they've been, um, along with becoming friends of mine through our community in Vancouver, uh, they've largely been kind of following along the successful uh, along the curve of the eWell program as far as being uh, newbie hunters and uh, and finding their way to be developing the skills and confidence of becoming hunters and um, along the way of taking a few workshops with me but mostly just about being pals uh, we've uh, kind of been fun to watch them on their journey to uh, yeah to be driving down the Alaska highway with a couple of elk on top of their um, on top of their van so want to tell that story with you guys today so anyways welcome uh tommy and will and uh will. how's it going hey well, tommy. thanks for having us dylan yep. yeah cool welcome to the well podcast mm-hmm. so it's the least i could do for that halibut dinner we just had yeah so so what do we have for dinner tonight guys well dylan made some a uh, sous vide halibut with a little uh a little sear what was on that sear a little bit of a little, sh- little brown, brown, brown sugar. sugar is the yeah so i add a little brown sugar to this caramelize nicely yeah just sears it right away because you when you, when you hit it in the in the sous vide, you want it to, you know, I'm cooking it to like 118 degree temperature, just so that's like the perfect temperature to cook halibut to, but it comes out looking like it's been boiled out of the sous vide package. You want to get like a little bit of a sear on the outside. So if you, you kind of coat it, rub it in brown sugar and, and some spices, then as soon as it touches the pan with the, the oil and the butter, it just kind of gives it like instant sear look to it. So it really just looks nice. So your yep. trick is oil and butter, so you're not burning the butter. Yeah, yeah. So you're not, you're not, you're not actually, it's, you're not cooking at that high a temperature. It just looks like it's been, and, and it gives you the texture too, because the, 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 the sugar actually caramelizes and kind of crisps up right away. Mm-hmm. So when it's served, it's like, oh, this is like nice, crisp, crusty exterior, beautiful. Well, it was delicious. It was delicious. Well, so. And that was enough to get you guys to give an hour to the Eat Well project. Yeah, on the uh, there is also remnants of white wine bottles floating around, so that helps. Yeah, it kind of keeps us chatting. Okay, and Tommy, how, how did you find yourself here? How did I find myself here? That's an interesting question. Um, how far back do we want to go here? Well, not that far back. We're, we're <laughs> like just successful hunter. A successful hunter, um, hardly that. Uh, a thirsty and hungry person. I would have to say, thirsty, and I'm here with my friends who I like to drink with, and hungry. Um, I, I like to have a nice full belly of clean meat and, and clean food in general. Um, I guess that could sum it up as to why I'm here. For sure. So, so when I met Tommy, which is like, I moved back to Vancouver in 2010, run the Olympics in Vancouver, and uh, I was on the Sunshine Coast, came back to Van, and uh, I grew up here, but, but I, I was kind of disconnected from my community. Uh, that I grew up with and the one thing I was into back then was soccer I was like kind of just discovering soccer and, and well, yeah I was learning how to play soccer at 30 
which was sort of a challenge in itself. And I came out to, there's a, there's a game on the east side of Vancouver. It's called the Strathcona. It was kind of a classic game that went like Sunday afternoons in, in Strathcona Park. And a bunch of hipsters would show up there and play soccer. And I, and I got wind this game was going on. So I, I would show up there every Sunday. And a bit of an outlier because I was probably 10 years older than everybody there. And it certainly wasn't a hipster. And, but they were welcoming. So I played soccer with them. And there was this one like tall, graceful dude that was an extremely good soccer player. And, and I remember like I could just boot the ball to him. And, and, and no matter where the ball ended up, he booted it in the back of the net. He just like had so much finish, so that was Tommy. So, and um, anyways, we we became friends because because um, he scored so many goals off my passes, and um, made me look good. I rescued the E Wild team a few times, didn't I? Well, yeah, and then you came out and played for the E Wilders a few times after. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, was our, that was our Urban Rec team. Yeah. Nonetheless, we should stay focused on interesting things that people actually want to know about, not our not our, you know, how our humble humble beginnings as friends. Right. Um, should we talk about the beginnings of uh, elk hunting for me? Yeah, Tommy? We'll, we'll 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 start we'll start it out here. So, so what I why I thought it'd be fun to sit down with you guys, other than the fact that I like hanging out with you guys, and, and I think it would translate well to to doing a podcast with you, is that you know I really have followed your your arc of success as hunters, and uh, and for the most part, like you guys have been good friends of mine and you actually haven't participated in all that many of my workshops so, like, so, you're like my worst customers like, so, like, but having said that we've done a bunch of hunts together and you guys have done a lot of adventure hunting on your own and really really gone out there and learned how to do this stuff so, so what I want to talk about this podcast was you know you guys so let's just take it back a step um, so, so this year I went elk hunting and uh, I went hook up with my my hunting partner Jeff Horsfield, and we've been we've been going hunting for for you know in the same place for thirteen years now. And out of the last twelve out of the last thirteen years, we've come home with an elk or two uh, out of our spot there. And, and this year it was a particularly challenging year, and there was there was very few um, mature bull elk on the hills that we were hunting. There was a ton of hunting pressure, which made for a more challenging year than normal and um so in the end we we were unsuccessful we had a couple of opportunities uh i sh- i one 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 bull elk that i called in uh ended up getting shot by another hunter just out from under us and another opportunity that i had i actually i i, I screwed up and missed and uh so pretty disheartening year so we're, we're driving down the alaska highway a little disheartened. Having said that, we had a good hunt, and you know it's all about the adventure and the experience, and certainly uh, did well on those merits. But um, but I was looking forward to hearing from you guys because you'd gone on, I think, it was your third or your fourth attempt at elk hunting. So the third year, Th- the third year, and and, and and so I got back in the cell service, and we exchanged a couple texts, and I acknowledged that you guys were in cell service. So I was very excited to hear about the experience you guys have had. Uh, and well, you guys had this year, and 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 anyway, maybe we start the story there. So, I get on the phone with you, Will, and uh, tell me about that conversation. Well, um, I guess it comes down to me and Tommy's different ways of telling stories. Tommy likes a dramatic, paused story with lots of build up, and I like to sort of just have a nice, rousing story that's quick and to the point. Um, so we had this kind of conversation before we talked to you. It was like, how should we deliver the story to Dylan? 
about what happened. And Tommy was really like, no, no, we have to like feed it to him bit by bit. Yeah. Let's also tease Dylan's let's story. Let's tease him. Let's get Dylan's story out and whatever. Details until he's tired of talking. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> you want to just be like, hey, Dylan, we shot two bulls. Ah! And then like, that's it. But like, you, there's no story then. And it's like, okay, we'll see how that happened. But then Tommy wants to be like, and then there was a crack in the forest and something stepped on a twig and we hunched down and whatever. So, um, so I, I actually, I don't even really remember how our conversation went that well, but we were going back and forth and, uh, and you know, I was saying the typical things you say when you don't shoot something, you know, it's great to be out there and it's nice to clear your mind get away from the job, you know, spend some time on the river. I was like, yeah, yeah, I hear you. Yep. I know all about that. Yep. It was, uh, it was great. But then eventually we were cutting up saw reception. He's like, okay, come on, tell it to me quick. And so anyways, so yeah, we had a very successful, um, trip and it was three years coming and there was a big buildup to it. And, uh, and I guess if, if we were to start from the beginning of that, um, started three years ago in a fishing store and uh, I was buying, it was the pink run was on and they were coming in through Indian arm and I was buying a fishing rod and a friend of my brother-in-law's, uh, uh, showed up in the, in the, in the store and ended up buying a rod. He's going to go pink fishing. And I was going out that day and my brother-in-law was with me. I was like, well, Hey, come on the boat. We'll take you out there. So we go out with them sort of just like very like serendipitous, um, He's stoked to get out on the boat and we take him. And if you know anything about pink fishing, you basically find where they're boiling and you throw in some, some pink anythings and they bite them and you, you know, you do pretty well. So we get out there, we fish, lots of laughs, whatever. My brother-in-law says, this guy's a big hunter. And I was just deer hunting. Well, not just deer hunting, but I was only deer hunting. And so we talking about deer hunting, whatever he's elk and, oh, you know, I'll tell you all about it. Come over to my house, whatever. And, Oh yeah, no problem. So anyways, it was a while and you never know when people are going to talk about their hunting spot. If they're going to, if they're just BSing you, if they're really going to tell you something, you know, like they, they want to be like, Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, I'll come over and I'll whatever. Oh, so no, your, your, your ears perk up and your ears perk up and you're, you're like, like, ah, but you want to play cool. You'd be like, Oh yeah, no, no. I mean, if you want just to talk about it a bit, like, so you don't, you don't take out your iPhone just yet. As no, no. <laughs> yeah. You don't, you got to play it cool. Like, oh yeah, yeah. Cool. No, no, cool. I mean, that, I don't know if alkaline is kind of a big thing. I don't know if I'd really go that far for that, but I mean, I'd be interested to hear like <laughs> what was happening where you went. Um, so anyways, it took actually a while. It took a while for him to open up and, uh, and so he didn't tell me quite then. So I came by later, brought some salmon to him. Came by again, brought some deer to him, hung out with his kids, learned their names. You play with them? I did. Well, I, you know, ah, I on the hair, but I didn't, I don't know how to deal with <laughs> <Yeah>. children. <laughs> <laughs> and so he brought maps and he showed us like, this is the river. Um, and the river is, uh, uh, up there in, um. Zipper by the Gulch. Valley? Yeah, Zippermouth. It feeds into Zippermouth Lake, uh, which feeds from the great headwaters of Zippermouth Zipper headwa headwaters. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, been there. So, brought maps and everything, and so we got stoked. To eat. Oh, yeah, it's not, not a big deal. You go, go, there's lots of elk and whatever. So, um, so we got, all, we got all psyched up about it. That was in the spring, and my brother-in-law has four children with my sister. And if you know anything about children or four children, it's horrific. It's a horrific scene. <laughs> and my sister is not pro hunting. And my mom's wasn't pro hunting though. She is, she's totally come around. 
So it was a big battle uh, to get my brother-in-law to take off a week from his four infant children. Um, but we did it. And uh, I'm going to I'm gonna cut a long story short, but we drove up. It was uh, 14 hours away. and Now, you, now, you, now you're giving away your spot because like, people can measure <laughs> yeah. 14 hours driving from Idaho. <laughs> exactly where I'm going. Yeah, right. Exactly right. Yeah, this is a universal podcast, right? So yeah, this this is my this is by far my favorite part of the story. <laughs> so like like two years ago, I was also driving down the Alaska Highway with anticipation of like calling these guys and and find getting in cell touch <laughs> with them to figure out how their trip went, and it was a much different story. It was it was well. It, it, there was a lot more, um, a little more drama involved with what. It was a lot of drama in the first year of your, of your Zippermouth River hunt. Let, let me just preface this preface. this short story you're about to tell. Very short story you're about to tell. <clears throat> we had accrued a group of maybe accumulated years of hunting of two between four people that were on this trip. Maybe maybe three years. So there were four of us, myself, Ben, you, and Tom. Three years of hunting. I had hunted two four, years. Two years, maybe? For me, yeah. And, you guys none, were, and none of us. Well, you had one elk hunt, that, which was uh, about half an hour. Less, less than half a day long um, before this. Yeah, so in like, in like really a ever one in eighty odds, and yeah, it's yeah. no relevance. It was no like relevance. in a farmer's field, ridiculous yeah. odds, and it wasn't an elk hunt. It no relevance like outside of the fact that none of us knew what the fuck we were about. To well, do no, you clearly get no, and this was interesting because as you guys were planning this trip, like I, 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 I was part of the conversation a number of times as to like, so, so these guys were planning to drift the Zippermouth River, which is not like you know, it's, it's, there's no secret to the Zippermouth River. It, it's it's been hot. It's uh, it's not it's not a um, uh, it's not a whitewater river. It's a fairly meandering river. Uh, it doesn't have a ton of crazy white water or falls. So it's it's you you could presumably canoe it if you were an experienced canoeist. Uh, my 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 perspective on it when you guys brought this idea to me I was like, well, you know, you're going to be going down a river for ten days potentially. It's going to be wet cold measurable because it's that's just how it is that you probably want to bring like a like a tent and a wood stove and a chainsaw if you don't have a wood stove and and in a wall tent then at least bring a chainsaw so you can dry out if you get wet and i believe the response was well how are we gonna get wet i'm bringing gumboots my feet aren't gonna get wet <laughs> and and so there, there was some pushback foreshadowing yeah some concept around like the the chainsaw and the precautions around like the stability of a raft. I, I, I was promoting rafts being the appropriate vessel to go down this river in the, in the pre-planning component of this trip. Because um, it's still a river, right? And there's still elk and moose and anything that you might want to throw into your boat. And a canoe just might just be a little not, just not putting up boat. So I had no idea that you wouldn't really necessarily get past the first riffle. In your boat. So, anyways, oh, oh, hey, 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 just take it right out of my mouth here. <laughs> no, just take the story from here. I built the story up a little bit. So, my my poor brother in law gets to leave his his uh, four screaming children, whom I love dearly as my nieces and nephews, uh, but are screaming nonetheless. And we all get together, and so yeah, I mean, we're all new hunters, um, and we go up to this guy's spot that he's generously shared with us. 
And so we drive about 14 hours, we go drop the car off, come back, and we're all getting settled. On the way up, we, we talked about contingency plans. So if you tip a canoe, like what's going to happen? And we said, well, okay, really important, we have to tie a rope through everything. So everything that has a handle or a loop, we're going to throw a rope around it. So if, if God forbid, we tip, which is not going to happen, uh, we'll have everything we need. So I left everyone, dropped the car off, came back, loaded canoes, everything. So my brother-in-law is a is a canoeist. Is that the word? Yeah, someone who has lots of experience in canoes. He's a canoeist. Yeah. And I am uh, extremely cocksure and reckless and thought I could canoe. And so my brother-in-law was like deciding where to put me in the canoe because it's a two-person canoe. And so he knows how to canoe, which means he should be in the back. But I'm also way fatter than him. So I should be in the back, but it was between like my fatness and inexperience. And I guess the scales weighed and I end up in the front. And so I get in this thing and, you know, it was, uh, it was a lot of rain that year. And, and we get in, we launch off and I have been in small boats my entire life. Like I have always been thinking around in small boats and I thought, you know, I'm totally cool with small things and small vessels or whatever. As soon as we leave the dock, I just feel totally scared. This thing is like down to the gunnel and so tippy. I'm just like on edge and we're ripping by. Of course, it was probably pathetic if you saw from the shore <laughs> how fast <laughs> we were going. But I felt like I was on a roller coaster and it was sketchy. We get to the confluence. This is literally three minutes. Three minutes, Tommy? About 30 seconds. So 30 seconds. Okay, okay two minutes. No okay, I'll give you two minutes. 30 seconds. If you were backpedaling, yeah, maybe two minutes. If <laughs> you're going with the current, like 45 seconds. So we're launching right before the confluence of uh, Zippermouth River and Zippermouth River. And uh, in that confluence, there was a horrific, terrifying rapid, <laughs> the likes of which many men have never seen. <laughs> It's like a, it's like a, I went through it last year and it was like a foreign triple. Yeah, okay. So, so my brother-in-law, I learned this afterwards because after we could talk about it, uh, I asked him like, why did you go that way? He went into the, into the terrifying rapids uh, as opposed to around them to, uh, to shake things up and to have some fun. And so we hit it and it's ha 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 the first one. The second one, all of a sudden, everything gets super real. The third one, water's coming over the bow into the bow onto my lap. The th am I on the third one? Yeah, the fourth one. I'm on the fourth one? On the fourth one. The fourth one, the boat, the canoe starts canting. And I'm still on like, I've been in a million, like it's impossible to flip anything, obviously. <laughs> we hit the fifth one and it is the slowest tipping of a canoe <laughs> I've ever not experienced because I've never flipped a canoe. It just slowly tipped and tipped and tipped. And because uh, I don't know anything, like I guess ideally I've been paddling hard on the side that was tipping, but I just grabbed the gunnels and tried to shift my weight over, which is like impossible. And we so slowly tipped. And the second I hit the water, it was the most like I would say like psychedelic experience. Like you, I don't know if you ever like pat. Have you ever like passed out? Were you, were you thinking back to the moment that I was like, <laughs> "Well, you guys should take rafts, not canoes, down the river." No, no, no I, I wasn't thinking about the six pack of Stella that was floating by. <laughs> <and> <laughs> I was trying to. It was Bud Light. Grab actually. it. <laughs> <laughs> Bud Light. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking about the 
life wrap I didn't put on the, the life vest. I was the only idiot without a life vest on. My gum boots on, and my anyways. So I hit the water, and when you surface from the water, I don't know if you like. You know that feeling? When, have you ever like fainted? Can you remember fainting? Yeah, or, like yeah, passing yeah. out, and you you faint, and then you have this insane like tumultuous, crazy dream. And it, it, the dream lasts like one second, I guess, or whatever. And then you wake up and it's like, you're so stunned. It feels like, like the mushrooms just hit. Like you just like all of a sudden, like, it's just so surreal. And that was the feeling you hit the water and you're like, I, I cannot believe that this is happening and it's happening. All your gears floating <laughs> and your beers floating and everything's floating. And it took us good 10 minutes to get the river. We, we were in that river for a long time. And, and luckily, our friends were in two other canoes, and uh, they managed to collect some of our gear. I lost my rifle, went right to the bottom. My brother-in-law lost his rifle, went right to the bottom. Um, I saved the six-pack of Bud Light that was floating away. I swam after it. Everyone was screaming at me. But I knew I needed it, and I got back to shore. <laughs> I was fighting a current to get to Will to help save his life. <laughs> And he was swimming in the opposite direction than me towards the beer. Swimming with gumboots full of water and all my layers of hunting clothes. Yeah, don't. Uh, yeah, I'm not. Uh, I'm not one for listening for advice. Um, so, anyways, we eventually got out of the river, lost all of our stuff, and I had like that classic Hollywood. Like, got to the bank, took my boots off, like drained the water out of my boots on the bank of the river, and. We reacted very differently. Um, my brother was super distraught because this was his thing. This was his hunt. This was like everything. Like he, like, this was a huge ordeal in my family. My parents were supporting my sister. It was a big ordeal for him to get on this hunt at all. Even for him to be hunting at all, to have a gun at all. And this was his new gun. And it was like a good gun. Satika and all this stuff. And so he lost it. And, and this was his one hunt. And, I can hunt whenever I want. I had, I mean, with my girlfriend, when you, you know, that conversation you have when you're dating someone and then the conversation is like, are we going to be exclusive or, or not? And you know, you're usually like lying in bed. It's usually like late at night and you know, you're in a hostage situation. <laughs> oh, jeez. This is where he cuts. No, no, I mean, no, no. This is a uh, real in here. No, huge respect to my to girlfriend and women in general, of course. But okay. this is a conversation. This is a no. This is a conversation you have. This, this is a conversation between have, two yeah. partners. Yeah, between two partners, that you said like, are we going to be like? Is this? Are we going to be exclusive now or whatever? And so, anyways, uh, I uh, I had I had told her. I said, well, I would love to, but you have to know something about me. And that is, in the fall, I won't be around that much because I'll be hunting. So I set that from from the beginning, and because I mean, there's nothing worse in this world than you meet guys in the hunting store and the gun store or whatever. And they're like complaining about their wife. It's just like so pathetic, you know? It's like you, you set all those, you married her, you set that expectation. That's the relationship you have. You haven't contributed something else to the relationship to make it worth her while for you to be hunting. Like, don't complain about your wife to a bunch of dudes in the gun store. It's super lame. So anyways. I like, I actually, this is, okay, so we're totally on a tangent here. <laughs> but I, I do. Ultra tangent. Yeah. Like, so like, you're like. I thought you were. I brought it back from the brink there, didn't I? I? Like you were at the brink, and I was like, <laughs> "We're still going to cut that little bit out there." Right? Well, I don't know. I, I I do appreciate this point about like, like you need to contribute enough to your relationship. Yeah, yeah. To like to be able to like you know like you want you you want your partner to support you to go hunting. 
Yeah. And and like and, and and there's nothing grosser than dudes talking about their old ladies who <coughs> don't support them going hunting. It's just so it's so tiresome. It's gross. But you're right. Yeah. It, you're absolutely right because you, you haven't built a relationship that supports what you need to do, which is go hunting, and you need to support whatever it is that your old lady, whatever you want to, you know, like, right? Like that. And you have the rest of the year to figure that out. You have the rest of the year to earn those brownie points or put the money in the bank or whatever. Like, but, yeah, so you like, shouldn't even be an exchange. It just should be you should you should support the person you're with to do the things that they love to do. They need yeah. to do. And actually, Will, you kind of nailed it there. So, anyways, yeah. give me props there. I was going to cut. You were going to cut all that out, but now now you might keep it. You might be able to we'll keep it. But um, yeah. so, anyways, uh, where was I here? My brother. Oh yeah, yeah. Long uh, uh, long of it is, my brother-in-law has one hunt a year. And of course, I can go out like you know often. And now my girlfriend comes out with me hunting, which is fantastic. Um, so there isn't that issue at all. But so he had this one hunt. So he's distraught in the bank of the river. I was giggling because I guess that's my response to like that kind of situation. The, the stress and your self-deprecation yeah. is uh, just kind of like just the, like this is going to be hilarious in a, in a little while. It's going to be a great story on the Eat Wild podcast in a couple of years. <laughs> so we lost everything, and there was a there was a bit of a debate in the crew. It was like, well, we can continue. We still got two guns between the four of us and half our hunting gear. But I was pushing most to keep going. Food. Yeah, yeah, most of the food, but there's trout in the river, probably right, and. uh but then, you know, for better or worse, I was over overridden, and uh, and so, anyways, that was year one, and we you know we hunted, we saw some elk, we hunted off the roads, not the roads, but off the logging roads and in the bush and whatever. But that's and not that. Interesting. And I recall a couple of stories that came out of that that like there was so there's four hunters, two guns, and there were there was a moose incident that didn't involve a gun. So one of one of the hunters, my brother-in-law. Was out hunting. He couldn't justify buying a gun because he has four children at home, and he can't just spend you know twelve hundred bucks on the whim. I bought the gun the next day, um, um, and he was out hunting, and he just had to watch a mature bull out uh, moose walk right past them. That was totally a shooter under the regs, um, and we had some chances at some elk. Um, and nothing panned out, but I mean, the the big thing was I remember one moment, and the one, one moment was we climbed up to the top of this hill, this mountain that was like a sheer cliff, and it was looking down to the, into the river. I almost said the river's name, looking down to the river, and there's all of us there, and we looked down, and it was the most beautiful, pristine, meandering river, and we were looking at these banks, and that was our river, and that's where we would have been had we have been able to go through, and that was a very like heartbreaking moment to watch that river and just imagine what it'd been like to float down it. So we, we swore to ourselves we'd do it again. And, um, I don't know. I've talked a lot here, Tommy. Maybe mm-hmm. you wanna... Well, I had an experience on the very last day of that hunt. Very last day of that hunt. I woke up <laughs> even earlier than I typically would. Earlier than me that day? <laughs> typically than I would, which was much earlier than you would every day. <laughs> All the boys decided to get licked the night before, you know. Just you got that one write-off night, you know, the one write-off. The very last night, the write-off night. But I yeah. felt like I had figured something out um, because I put up a trail camera, like, in this spot where we found a lot of sign and whatnot. Anyhow, so we had a couple of elk, some cows and, and a bull on the camera. And I thought I'd go to that spot early that last morning and check it out. And I got a tip from someone up in that uh, neck of the woods on how to hunt elk. Um, I mean, it's pretty simple. He said not to, not to 
not to use my bull call and just use a cow call. Play your wind. So I set up in the spot where I knew the elk were almost daily. Um, do, do a couple cow calls, walk with the wind 20 feet. Uh, wait five minutes, do a couple cow calls, walk with the wind, another 20 feet, so on and so forth. And within 20 minutes, I uh, I called in a spiker. This was my first encounter. I called him into like 10 feet. And in that experience, um, I think that that was, so that was the last year of our hunt, and it was like the second day of, of cow elk season two. And while I was calling this boy in, I saw in my peripheral a couple of cow elk. And in the past few days when we were in that area, uh, the other three of them were set up and were, you know, they were ready and able to shoot if we saw cow elk. But this fine morning when I was out alone, <laughs> the cow elk were there and my hunter friends were not. So <clears throat> long story short, the bull elk was too, uh, was too small. It was a, it was a spiker. And um, it needed to be a six point in this area where we were. It's got a long way to go from us. Long way to go. But it was yeah. my first encounter with the bullock. So, um, yeah, um, that was that. And it was an incredible experience. Felt like I learned a lot just from that one morning. And uh, that one that one fella that gave me the tips. But yeah, I went back to camp and was quite angry with everybody. And it didn't matter because they were hungover. Oh, because because they didn't combine with you. Had you had another partner with you, you would have got one of those elk. One of those cows. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's this. Yeah. Yeah. I know that feeling. Theoretically, the, yeah. I've had that happen a few times where you're like, oh man, that was that and one. Just, you gotta have that one night where you just you throw the cork in the fire and you just finish the scotch, and you call like the hunting trips over. That was that one night. Yeah, and you guys could have had two cow elk. Lots of things could have happened, man. Okay, so, so let's fast forward a little bit here because we, we, we're going to get a few more story here. here. Um, so the next year, I, I've actually got a draw. I, I've got a draw for a caribou hunt in uh, the Ilgatchutz, which is a park in uh, sort of the on the Chukotan Plateau. And uh, I'm planning to go on this hunt with my cousin Jess and, one, and Selena, one of my partners with Eat Wild. And... Uh, Jess and I both have draws for this for this once in a lifetime caribou hunting opportunity, and so we were all planned out. Selena's going to come; she's keen to come hang out with us in the mountains and do this trip. Jess and I are are, are fired up. We've got the plane booked. We're going to do this trip. I get a call from my counterpart, one of my one of my buddies in parks who manages that the the park, the Itchagatchutz Park. And he says, "Hey, the park's closed. There's wildfire right up against the park boundary." And so no one's flying in or out. So, you, you know, we'll let you know if things change, but uh, you're, you're, you're locked out for now. So then we started talking, I started talking to you guys about what you guys were up to because you, I'd come back from my elk hunt and uh, I hadn't killed an elk that year. And uh, and then I was checking in with, oh yeah, we, we had drifted the, uh, one of the rivers up north, a bit of an exploratory river drift. And it was a bit of a bust. It was 27 degrees every day. And we saw nothing but, well, it was just hot. I saw a few elk early in the trip, but it, was, it, was, it wasn't successful. So so I was hunting a bit hungry. And you guys were talking about doing your trip down Zippermouth, which seems sort of interesting to me. Um, but the priority would have obviously been to do this once in a lifetime caribou hunt. 
but we were locked out. So we we ended up sort of jumping once we've been uh, once the wildfires had locked us out of our, our hunt. We we jumped on board with your guys' trip and uh, came on board with you because so we because I just bought this new raft and you guys had a raft and uh, the girls were keen to join you on the trip. So you guys were generous enough to share sharing your hunt the two of you and so we all went down the zipper mouth river my brother-in-law at this point was still this was a year of dejection for him and it shows like it shows a lot of in a way a kind of character that i don't have which is like he really felt like a penance like he had to like he lost all this gear and whatever so my brother-in-law wasn't even thinking about doing it again that that year he had to like you know save up and whatever and to justify buying the, the gear he lost and and uh so anyways he couldn't come so it was just me and Tommy so it was great that you could come with Selena and and uh come in on this hunt That's and it pretty much show you guys how show us the ropes show us well, so called well I convinced you at that point to bring <laughs> rafts so yep. that was a win right yep. so there was no more we had a raft this time we had a raft and I also convinced you to bring a wall tent wood stove and a chainsaw you brought those things that you had, so that was great. <laughs> yes, <laughs> my contribution. <laughs> Which we didn't. It was well. We did use the wall tent a couple times, didn't we? Yeah, it was. It was you used every night. almost every time. Yeah, it was actually yeah. pretty awful. It was. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty great to have it. The first year would have been fine because the weather was quite hot, but that year it was quite. I mean, yeah, to be able to reset. Take your wet yeah. gear off, yeah, yeah. And get a good reset, dry your shit out, and have a nice night is invaluable. And I think that's something that should, should be expressed in, in, in this podcast is like for a lot of these trips, like I mean, some trips if you go if you go for one or two days on a, on a you're, you're driving somewhere and you go climb around the mountains or you just go for a weekend somewhere and set up your pop tent, like you can survive being wet for a day or two. But when you do these epics where you're drifting a river for ten days, like you you're at the whim of the weather. Like you have no, you have no control over what the weather's going to do. And, and you definitely need to be able to have a plan to stay dry or to get dry once you're wet. Otherwise you, you run the risk of, of dying like you, you, or, or just having an extremely uncomfortable trip yeah. for the duration of, of 10 days because you just can't dry up. So wall tents or, or some type of a, a tent with a wood stove and it allows you that opportunity to dry out. And that that's critical for these types of adventures. So, so anyways, you guys are hip to that now. Yeah. So we had our trip. Which was which was we, we had some fun on our trip. We had some moments of excitement. Yep. Yep. We did we did hunt we did we did find some elk. We did we did uh have some close encounters for sure. Jess almost got an elk. And uh yeah, Tommy and I almost got an elk. Yeah, and I, I really I really didn't know how to hunt elk still. I mean off a river, uh, still rookie, still like learning, still trying to figure stuff out, calling, waiting for them to come out, calling, not knowing what to do when you hear them. And there's so many, so many things that I wish I had known then. But uh, I recall yeah. that about that hunt too, because there was there was five <clears throat> of us and four new hunters, and I recall everybody had a little bit of different perspective about how to hunt. I remember Selena is a bit of a moose hunter. So she wanted to go find a particular type of habitat and go sit around on that habitat waiting for a moose to show up. Mm-hmm. So it was difficult to kind of convince her that moose are different than elk in terms of 
their their behaviors and how you'd hunt them. But she just had her focus, which she just wanted to cover ground and go find these particular habitat types. Will, you were like, why would I go in the bush when I can just sit on the river and like wait for an elk to walk across the river? <laughs> and kind of a lazy man approach. But that but that's how I think the guys who explained this trip to you had that, that's that's what I had been told. That's what kind of what they did. They yeah. set up on the river. They found where they were crossing, and they set up. And I and ultimately, I think it was a combination of that with the beat the bush until two p.m. every day. It was a combination of those two things that I think had success for us in the, in third, the third year. Yeah, it was yeah being able to do both those things. I think in a way that's kind of like was a really good tactic. I don't know for you, but for deer hunting, I like to sit for you know the beginning of the day and then walk the rest of the day. And I felt like that yeah. that combination of doing both of them. Yeah. Seems to work well. Yeah, when, when, when the animals are active themselves, and when they're moving around, it makes more sense to sit around. And when they're not active and bedded down, that makes maybe more sense to go look for them. Yeah. So out of, out of the four hunters, the only person that actually like, like listened to me was my cousin, who's deaf. So she, <laughs> so she interpreted what I was saying. And she was the only person that would actually follow me around and hunt elk with me. So it was the only person that we actually had a good hunt, like actually had an elk interaction with because we... we sort of pursue elk we'd actually go in the yep. woods and and try and find them and and, uh, and we had a couple of good hunts out of the bunch I mean, Tommy you and I had a bit of an excitement setting moment there which was I, I was surprised we actually called the elk out to the sandbar but uh, that w- that was exciting what was your technique were you were you doing cow calls the whole way through or did you start with bull calls and then finish it with cow calls I can't even remember to be honest like what I do recall is he like we had heard him bugling and and I would have probably if, if he was close enough I would have just gone straight to cow calling if I thought that I could get it, like, you'll always get an elk in closer if you can cow call them in mm. so if you if you can get him responding to your cow call so and by responding like if you hear an elk bugling you you mark where he's bugling and then if you start cow calling and then he bugles again and he's closer then that's an indication that he's coming in so I wouldn't even touch my bugle I, I would just continue to cow call until he comes in I won't bugle until he starts to uh, if he's not coming in and then I'll then I'll either bugle for one of two reasons one one would be the if if I bugle at him that might get his attention that he might be more responsive and then start to work his way in but if I cow call a few more times and he's still hung up then I'll just uh, I might bugle just to locate him and then go in on him and to chase to, to, to move in on on again try to figure where he's at and then sneak in on him and then I'll but generally speaking I, I, I can't recall a time that I've been like that I bugled and had the and had the elk actually come in on me more and more it's usually the cow call that draws them in hmm. generally but it's, it, you never know I mean, sometimes you cow, sometimes you bugle and they come racing in yeah. And that's happened a yeah. few times for sure. So different every time. Yeah, you mix it up, and sometimes it works. Sometimes they bite on something. And in this particular instance, we were across the river from this elk that you called in, and I vaguely remember cow calls towards the end. Yeah, but sure. anyhow, anyhow, but I, we, we were a bit experience. rushed on that whole experience <laughs> because one of the challenges with elk hunting, and this is a place that's not. A lot of other guys are hunting here, and there was actually another group of guys bugling in a field behind us. 
And so there was a potential this elk could have been coming to this other guy's bugle. I was cow calling in between. And when that elk stepped out, like there was a reality that there could have been more, more people than me just looking at this elk. So, you know, we, we were, we were limited in our options as to what we were going to do next, where we could have called that elk further out onto the sandbar, potentially shot it as opposed to just watching it where, where it was. Um, and, uh, in the end, I mean, you're always managing the, 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 all the things that are going on can be challenging. Mm-hmm. But it was a good, it was, it was a very fun trip. I would say like this, like I really enjoyed the camping aspects of that trip. <laughs> camping and the rafting. <laughs> the rafting. We brought a recorder. I bought a $7 recorder and uh, we were playing Christmas carols. That was uh, definitely a highlight. Yeah. Rafting. It's a very slow moving river. We're going to be lots of tips on what this river is. I mean, there were some pretty gnarly parts with the and rapids, and but like, that. there were some that, slow parts too, well, I guess. It was the two and a half hour portage in the, in the way that was a bit scary, but with that major drop in the river, don't, don't go over the drop. Um, but yeah, like, yeah, lo- slow moving moments on the river where we, where, yeah, there was like some really lovely Christmas carols on the recorder. Anyways, moving on. Moving so, on. Let's so, wait, 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 wait. The, the, the point about the second year is that you guys managed to get organized and you guys got more equipped, which I think is the most important part. Like, yeah. You actually got a, you guys got a raft, you guys got a wall tent and a stove figured out and you got like the kind of plan in place and you recognize how much of an effort it takes to do an epic like this. And regardless, like your first year, you guys would have suffered anyways because you didn't have a wall tent, you didn't have a chainsaw. Yeah. You, and I mean, maybe you luck out with the weather, and you don't get you don't get soaked to the ass. But you know, maybe it all works out. But it, but this year, you the next year, like the year that we were in there, you were equipped and prepared to deal with it. We didn't kill an elk, so you guys go back there this year. Yeah, the, just a couple takeaways for myself from that second year. You when you were setting up camp, I was taking notes on how you would set up camp and drawing diagrams in my diary as to how you would set up your wall tent, the types of wood that you would source, the type of ground that you'd set up on, all that kind of stuff. And obviously pinning all the all the spots that were actually fruitful in terms of hearing elk. So um, yeah, year three we went back to a lot of those same spots and saw what, what uh, well, tried to figure out if they were out there again. But also uh, the thing that burnt the most was, or burnt in my mind the most was uh, I think it was one of our last hunts. You went, you heard an elk call across from camp. You went straight to the call, deep into the woods. You brought Selena and Jess with you, and you had a few encounters. Hmm. And you told me that day, you locate an elk, and you push into it. You try to get as close as you can to it. And I remember that, and I, that, that was like a huge point for me. And, and we didn't have another opportunity to do that for the rest of the hunt so i thought about that for the whole year like okay next time i hear elk i'm gonna push into them and see how it goes from there yeah so it's always a gamble though like like i do that a lot where like where i find the most success is when you when you when you hear an elk you want to get as close to that elk as you can um without disturbing right but you want to but you want to be so close to that elk that when you call, whether it's a cow or a bull call, it responds instantly. Like it's like, holy jump, and there's a cow here that I don't know, and she's like right here, and I'm gonna come in, or a bull, or, or for that matter, if you call like a bull, you're you're almost challenging. You're so close that like, how the heck did this bull get so close to me that 
he's in my space and he's invading my, my, my harem of, of cows and he's responsive. And it, it seems to be super effective. Yeah. And, um, having said that, like on this past trip, I, like I, I did that exact thing. There was, there was, there's a spot where uh, one of the valleys I like to hunt, there's, there's a bull elk and often a six point bull elk lives on this one particular hill. And I've never been able to, I've just never been able to kill this. Like, when I say it, it's, this, it's not the same bull every year, but it's the same uh, bull elk will use the same particular like geographic location mm-hmm. as their domain, as, as their like, as their, where they like to hang. And year over year, the most dominant bull in the valley will live on that particular spot. Because it has all the features for its, necessary for its survival. Yeah, it has all the features for its survival. So so this particular guy lives in a spot we call Grizzly Bear Valley. And, which is named because there's lots of grizzly bears in the valley, which is, there's mountains there for sure. But, it's just in a spot that's kind of hard to get to, and it's a little bit steep and gnarly, and there's just, there's just no way I just can't call him off his spot. He just won't come in. And and so I, every year I develop a new theory as to how I might be able to get that bull elk to respond to my call or how I can sneak up on him. And I had a new plan this year. And so I snuck up in a different direction and I could hear him bugling. And so I snuck up on him. And I think as I got up to the to this this little bit of a bench where I figured I could probably get him, I could probably call him down along the bench. I popped up on the bench and I could hear him bugling. And I was only like maybe 150 yards away from him. I was like, this is perfect. I got this set up, got this nice bench to work with. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cow close to come right down on me. And I look at like 10 feet from me, there's a cow elk looking at me through the bush. <laughs> and, she, and I'm like, oh, frack. And then she just explodes. And hmm. I, uh, next thing I know, all these elk run in every direction, and then this obviously once that happens, it's all done. But, but yeah, so there's, there's a herd of elk there, and, and but you but yeah, so that the concept of pushing in on them is great when it works, but you can also have a huge screw up, and that and that's yeah. happening a number of times where you either bump the elk itself or you bump into its herd and, and blow it out, and that was it for that trip, and hmm. yeah, wasn't responsive after that. It's interesting to listen to we listened to that uh, Steve Ranella podcast on the way up to our trip, and they were talking about how like not all cow elk are the same. And they have like the like the big mama cow elk that are sort of like the the lead cow elk, and you have the juvenile cow elk, and and you can kind of spook the juvenile ones and still kind of save the situation because no one takes them seriously. But if you spook the wrong cow elk, then it's over. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, we 100%. had that. We had yeah, that. Yeah, you've had that experience a lot. Yeah, yeah. Like a few years ago, um, one of the elk I, I shot, it was it's just like the most amazing experience I've ever had. Like I was, I was, I was, I snuck in on this bull elk that was just screaming at seven in the morning. It was just cranking, just going. And I snuck in on him and he probably had 30 cows with him. <laughs> and I was like, right in with this cows. Like I, I could have touched a couple of those cows at times. And like, they just didn't notice me, hear me. Didn't, they looked at me, looked away, looked at me, looked away, kept eating. And then I could see him every once in a while. I see him flashing by and I'm trying to figure out if he was a six point or not um, for the longest time. And I, like I've got elk all around me. I, I'm pinned down, I can't even move. Like, 
And and eventually he the he would sort of slither away and go up the hill a little bit and those cows would follow him and then they they'd pull off me and then I'd like sneak up again trying to sneak around and get up above them and then the whole herd would kind of come right over top of me again and I'd mm-hmm. be right in the middle of them again and and for whatever reason they they just weren't responding to me so yeah it was uh, it was totally cool it was mm-hmm. just totally cool to be that but yeah I I, I find that to be the, the it's the same with deer as well. Like the, you'll, you'll like some deer just respond and they just like, they blow out right instantly. And other deer, like they're just kind of curious. They just haven't had as many like interactions I, with humans. That's always right? the thing that, that blows my mind with deer hunting. It's so crazy. It's like sometimes you're, you're walking and they are hearing you 150 yards away through Salal. Like you're in the Pacific Northwest rainforest and you can't even see, you know, if they were a third the distance from you and you can just hear them running off a hundred yards away. Like I will never, ever shoot a deer ever. And sometimes you just walk right into them. It's, it's the weirdest thing. Strange thing. And you just so, never know why. So there's a couple theories for that. Well, well one, I mean, uh, there's, there's a few things. Like obviously smell. Like yeah. if, 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 the, if the wind is passing over the animal, they're going to they're gonna bugger off. But if, if the wind isn't bugger, going, going across them, they're more likely to hang in there. And then... The other, the other theory is that like, and I and I've witnessed it. And it kind of trips me up, but like the whole like like the the gravitational pull of the moon, like the whole like cylinder calendar thing. Whoa! I don't know, like like I I so apparently like okay, this is Just throw it out there, man. Throw it out there. Okay, okay. So so deer have peak. Well, okay. Well, fish have peak activity periods. Okay. Oh, of course they. So so slack the slack tide. Uh, is a, there's a high tide and a, and a low tide, and it, and as you transition from a high tide to a low tide, or, or from a from a flood tide to an ebb tide, there's a there's a slack period, right, where where all the water stops moving, and during that period when all the water stops moving, it's a peak activity period for all fish. So little fishes that want to go eat plankton are all active because all of a sudden the plankton stop moving with the current of the water, and they're all feeding on plankton. And then the bigger fish go eat the little fish because they're not, you know, being washed away by the current and so on. And then the bigger fish eat the bigger fish. So, so as a fisherman or fish person, you'll be out there and at slack tide, it's by far the best time to fish. So I only fish halibut on a slack tide. I only fish salmon on a slack tide because it's by far the best time to catch fish. The odd thing is, is that slack tide on the west coast of Vancouver Island is a peak that peak activity period for fish, it's also a peak activity period for, for ungulates in the interior. Whoa. Now, I don't know what the logic or rationale is for that, but if you look at, like, every, every like, there's, there's, you'll see uh, in the back of any magazine, any hunting magazine, there's, like, a, there's a, there's a thing about uh, peak activity, best times to hunt and, and fish at the same times, but... It's irregardless of land-based or water-based activity. Hmm. So, and I've seen this though, when, and I've, and I've timed it to my tides that like, I'll be sitting in a whitetail spot that I, that I know that I can just absolutely know every tree and every, every rock. And there'll be a slack tide on Vancouver Island. And all of a sudden the deer get up and they all start moving around. Hmm. Feeding. Now the crazy part is, is that they'll get up and they'll go from 
east to west, depending on the tide, in terms of their which way they walk. And if you happen to be walking in the same direction of them, they don't react to you. You're almost like you're going in the flow of the activity of the deer on that hill of the day. Now, if you happen to be going the opposite direction, walking the other way, they would no doubt spring to action and, and, and cruise off. But I've been, on a number of occasions, I've been like walking across my hill, going, why is it that all these deer are taking no notice of me right now? And other times, I've been walking the other direction, going, how the heck, why can't I get the drop on a deer 150 yards out? And they were just disappearing. And this I, is an instance of where, like, science feels like a ghost story. Like, like I really... Fascinating. I really love this. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to believe it immediately even though like I can't imagine how that would work scientifically but I just love that sort of thing and uh, yeah that's fascinating it's it's on God's honest truth huh. like, it's observations from anyway, again we're on a tangent here and we gotta wrap the story because we're we're, we're we're well over our hour of, of discussion so we need to get to where how you guys came to the, the moment where I'm on the phone with you guys and uh and you guys are telling me about this. So I'm on the phone with you guys. Well, yeah, I'm on speakerphone in the let van. Me, let me just let me just back up to uh, for me the moment like the moment I was looking forward to the most was when we launched the the well my my brother in law was still in a, can, in a canoe and but me and Tommy in a raft course because oh, yeah i'm done with canoes man i don't want to be in a canoe again <laughs> i lost that fearlessness man it's it stuck with me i had to go in the canoe a couple times during the trip to like get somewhere and i was like kind of freaked out i i got a little bit of a little bit of a thing about that you're gonna have to overcome that I a little bit of a thing with canoes now yeah, trauma that i never had before so anyways the moment i was waiting for for the entire trip was to see my brother-in-law get out there again and for us to go under under that spot uh, where we flipped and for him to get out there with his new gun and whatever. And, and so, yeah, we did that. And that was, that was a big, uh, that was great. So, so we were the original crew, minus one guy, but we were the original crew was the first year. And we're in year three. I have to say that I had a bit of reluctance leading into that. After the second year, no elk. 14-hour drive up from Idaho, somewhere in the Kootenays. Like, I wasn't ready to do that again. Um, and I thought the best way to overcome this and guarantee success was to immerse myself in hundreds of hours of literature and podcasts on elk hunting, which... Uh, None of which would be as valuable as the one that we're currently hosting. Absolutely <laughs> not. No. Which is why you're doing an elk podcast, an elk specific podcast right now, so we can share this logic out with uh, these learnings out. Condense it all. Well, with the vast listening audience of the Eat Wild podcast, yes. So we did it. You did it. I didn't listen to anything. No, I mean, got in a car, drove up from Boise, British Columbia, to our river, same river we've been for years now in a row, and 
Yeah, started with uh, started with a couple of camping spots in mind. Um, checked out some of our old stomping grounds that we had visited the year before with Dylan and looked for the sign that Dylan had suggested that we look for. Fresh tracks, heavy beaten tracks, periodic calling from the boat, periodic calling from the beaches. Did you guys actually hear any elk um, call back from the river? Um, not when we were moving down the river. Yeah. So we did hear elk from the river when we were on the boat stationed. And, and we'll get to that in a little bit. That's a little bit of a story. But I think that um, our first camp, what was our, our first camp? Was it was up on the sandbank? Yeah, our first camp was, um, I think we got to a spot 10K down the river and set up on the sandbank. And we didn't get an evening hunt in. I don't think. And then the next morning, uh, we split the group up. I went off on my own and you and Tom went up in in the opposite direction. My technique was walking alongside the river uh, and just uh, doing a bull call, locator call, nothing too intimidating. Every five minutes, my my walk was probably about 10K down the river and about at the 5K mark. And keep in mind that I was doing my bull calls like every five minutes, which is probably every like 40 meters or something like that. I don't know, 50 meters. I heard, no, I didn't get a response until halfway through my trip. My response was from across the river. And I just put like a mental pin down like, okay, I heard, I heard a bull call back. It was about 8 a.m. across the river whatever, I'm still going to keep going down my path because it would have been impossible for me to cross this, this heavy river on my own without the boat. I was pretty far from camp and whatnot. So I kept walking, kept trying to learn, kept looking for sign. Um, anyways, I got had lunch, turned back around, and when I got to about the same spot, like halfway down this 10K walk, um, from point A to point B, 10K, um, I did a call from that same area, and I got a response from the same area across the river, deep in the forest, and uh, and it was in an oxbow, like a very, very large oxbow. You know, oxbow is kind of like a floodplain, right? Dylan, you could better explain it. It's, it's just a bend on a river, kind of like a floodplain, not much of an elevation gain, pretty flat. And I think the cows yeah, like yeah. to hang out in that stuff. Well, just an oxbow is where, where, where the river used to take a bend, you know, uh, bend, took a bend around and then eventually the, the river took a different route. Uh, a more direct route and left this little bend to uh, fill in with sediment. And so the sediment filled in at either end and it left a little bit of a lake and behind it looks like a, like a little, like almost a half moon shape. And you'll, you'll see these on, on maps if you're looking at meandering rivers where they're, where they've isolated themselves from the old river bends and they go more, more, more direct route. But, which makes for great habitat because it's, it's a still little piece. It's a lake. It's a little, it's a little half moon lake off a river and it, it's full of it's full of you know good vegetation for for moose and elk to eat and right. uh, waterfowl yeah. to hang out. So yeah, that's what we learned through um, through hike trudging through them over the next few days and, and the trip before is that that's where we would bump our elk and bump our moose. Anyhow, I had located that elk, went back to camp, got back to camp at about eleven, and I started my morning at about six a.m. Will and Tom were sitting uh, by a fire, very relaxed. 
And I invited them out to, to come hunt this elk that I heard, like, what well, let's let's push into it. Um, and there was one key piece of information that I carried with me from, I, uh, I guess it was a podcast that I had listened to. And it's from that guy, Jason Phelps, who has, like, Phelps game calls. He makes elk game calls and, like, turkey game calls and whatnot from Washington State, not too far from us in Idaho. And, uh, and he said that if he hears a... If he gets a response from a bull elk, nine out of ten times, he will see that elk if he's aggressive and he pushes into it. And so I went into this hunt with that confidence. Like, Fuck, nine out of ten, hey? Okay, I really, I really need to be more aggressive in the way I hunt these elk. And by aggressive, it's not being reckless. It's just about playing your wind, knowing the, the key principles. Playing your wind... If, if that elk isn't coming to you, then, and then just be very wary that there might be cows like you had mentioned, there might be cows around him. So, um, try to be acute to that. But anyhow, so I, per I persuaded Will to come out on this, on this little jaunt to pursue this, our first elk that we had heard on the trip and Will and I went out and as soon as we stepped in the forest, I called and he responded and, and we knew it was on. And so we, we tried to figure out the wind in this, in this oxbow and it was a little bit tricky. It was kind of like pushing around in different directions. This was at like 2.30 or something in the afternoon. No, this, this is about noon now. So this, this baffles me because like in all my experience elk hunting, like I've had a few occasions where I've heard elk bugling past 10 o'clock, 10 or 11 o'clock. And and know that the, that you guys are onto an elk that's that's committing to bugling at noon is yeah irregular. So this is another this is another pillar for me that I picked up from from all my research is that a few inspiring hunters have said that they do not stop hunting in the middle of the day. Most of the elk that they put down is between eleven and two p.m. Hmm. So that, that was consistently true our entire trip. Consistently like we had so much action at noon, 11, one. Um, yeah, that was, that, that's going to stay what with days me for a while. Guys, what, what days are you actually hunting? What were these days like in the calendar? Uh, that first day was probably a Monday or September a Tuesday. 14th? No, 11th. Yeah. That, that's kind of the peak of the rut. So September, so where we are, where we're hiding in British Columbia, it's like September 10th is kind of the peak of the rut. Like I think a lot of merit to hunting earlier than that. And there's some merit to hunting after that, but like the peak activity period for these elk is around the 10th, 11th, 12th. So, so there's a few days that were in my experience where I've, where I've had elk calling past 11 o'clock and mm. I've killed two or three elk, so I've killed three elk after 11 o'clock in the morning hunt. Like, mm. so where you're like, you, you've been on elk, since the morning and you eventually shoot them around 11 or 12 o'clock mm -hmm. and I've had three occasions of that happening and yeah so it does and that's all they've all been those have probably been all been like the 10th 11 or 12th of, of September definitely not like an elk or earlier in the season I just I just there's just nothing happened if you're hunting elk on the September 1st mm. they, they're active till Eight, between 8 and 10 o'clock in the morning but after that they just shut right down there's just other than I mean potentially fluking one like sneaking up on them but you wouldn't yeah. you wouldn't have that interaction 
that that calling experience. Hmm. Yeah, but interesting. So. I mean, maybe it's important to note the weather on this day was also mild. It was like maybe 13, 14 degrees. So nothing, nothing really notable there in terms of like an extreme weather instance. But anyhow, so we try we were playing the wind. We decided to make like an L shape to sort of maybe hook around this elk. And with our first couple of calls, we didn't know if he was coming into our call or, um, or whether or not, you know, we should go in directly to him still while playing the wind and hooking around. Um, but this guy was, he would respond as soon as I would call instant response, super aggressive, like get the fuck out of my oxbow kind of thing. Get out of my hood. Um, so by like, and, and we're pushing in and, you know, we're not really wary of our sound or, we're, you know, we're kind of quiet, but, but we're not too concerned. And, um, and with those first couple of calls, we was probably about 400, 300 yards away to where he was situated from where we were. And by our fourth call, I would say that we were about 250 yards. We could detect that he was kind of coming into us. And yeah, with every, every five minutes we would call, he would respond and we were sort of going to meet somewhere in the middle and then lo and behold I brought Will to his first elk encounter Will maybe you want to describe uh, what that was like for you well yeah I mean we were so we were together this whole time and <laughs> the elk kept uh, every time we called we could feel he was going downwind of us with every call so he was trying to sniff us out and see what was happening and so we kept moving in a way that we were getting closer to him, but also not letting him get downwind of us. And, uh, and that was working out. And so we got closer, closer, closer. And it was, it was, uh, it was super exciting. It got to a point where it's like, okay, I think we have to like set up here because he's, he's ready to come out. And that moment, man, when he stepped out, it was like, it's just surreal. This is something that large and that color, like that sort of like reddish color, mm-hmm. all of a sudden appear that it's, it's not like, I feel like sometimes you'll see uh, like a black tail and even though there's sort of more of a gray and they don't quite blend in, but they still kind of really blend in in a way. Like you can still kind of like look past really quickly and like not see them. Yeah. Um, but an elk steps out and you're like, that is an elk. <laughs> like that is <laughs> no doubt an orange, gigantic, massively entered thing. And it just, it appears and it's, it's surreal and like, yeah, I mean, it's it's a magical experience to have that thing. And he came right into us. And then something happened that, like, I'll never know. I'll never understand what happened next. I'll just never get it. He walked in. So I'm set up. I found this, like, tree that was bent over. And I had, like, a really nice rest on it. And it was sort of a thick forest, slashy, um, lots of uh, dead fall around. And so he walked out. I had my gun on this rest. Tommy is next to me. Tommy wasn't next to me. We're going to set up a little bit apart so we get different shooting angles. But he realized I had the better shooting angle. So he walked over. He's like two two feet from me or one feet one foot from me. And this elk walks in within like 40, 30 yards of us. Walks in and we're freaked out because we've never seen anything like that before. And uh, I'm thinking like, why hasn't Tommy shot this guy yet? And like, what's going on? Like, where am I? I'm expecting to hear a gunshot next to me anytime. And then it's happened. So he's dead on. So I line up and I, I take my shot right in the middle of his chest. And then he just like walks away. Tommy doesn't shoot. And you realize like that one foot 
when you're in some slashy stuff, that one foot is all the difference. Yeah. It's all the difference. Like he, he never had a shot at all. And so he walks away and I'm, I'm pretty confident that that's a dead L. Cause I mean, I, it was right there and you know, I'm at the member of a range. I'm shooting at 300 yards or whatever, you know, like I think I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm, I'm reasonable. Like I'm confident in my gun and, so 30 yards, you're confident that you can hit Yeah, I'm like a, the 30, 40 yard mark, elk. I feel like I could probably hit an elk yeah. with like a target that's like, uh, you know, one like one foot across. Yeah, easy. Yeah, I get it. Pretty straightforward, right? And uh, so we uh, we sit down, wait half an hour, even maybe even longer, 40 minutes. And, uh, and uh, feeling pretty good about it. And we get out. Mark, mark where we were, tape, uh, flagging tape, take a compass bearing where we shot, remember the compass bearing, walk over to my, my shot, and uh, nothing, nothing anywhere. Not a drop of blood, not hair, nothing. Mark it with flagging tape. Walk over to where he walked, walked over where I saw him last as he's walking away, flag that, Take look at my compass, make sure my bearing's right, then I'm not like confused. Nothing. Spent four hours or maybe longer until the sun went down. Three of us scoured in concentric circles, didn't find one drop of blood, not one bit of hair. We found all the beds the elk had used. None of the beds had any blood in them. Just completely gone with nothing, no trace, nothing. Nothing at all. Well, not one drop, nothing. We had heard that we bumped them though, potentially a yeah, couple of times. We we heard we heard two sounds. We heard one sound of something behind us that huffed and then bolted. So it could have been it sounds like a whitetail. I don't know. It was pretty far though, maybe another 50, 60 yards from behind us. Yeah. Yeah. So possibly he circled us went downwind and booked it. Then we heard some other no, mo commotion over there, but you're hunting elk, so they're in herds, so they could be, there could be lots of them. There'd be lots of cows around, you have no yeah, idea what's absolutely. happening, right? Um, so anyways, search, you know, three dudes for four hours is a lot of mana for, and it's nothing, no blood, nothing. So, I don't know, went back a million times to the shooting location, looked through my scope at what I was looking at, and um, I don't know, there was a bunch of deadfall, a bunch of limbs sticking up out of the ground from deadfall. So thinking maybe deflection, that would be the best case scenario. But I'll, I'll just, you simply never know. Yeah. One of the things that I've had happen to me a couple times in the last, I missed an elk a couple years ago and, and uh, missed a deer that I ended up actually getting last year and it was the same scenario where like I did the same stupid mistake where um, I had sighted it I, I, I looked at the animal first uh, its head its head its antlers to ensure it's legal mm. right? and then and I, I'm looking through my binoculars I'm like oh that's a legal bull elk and I put my, bull, I put my antlers put my binoculars down and then switch over to my rifle and then put the crosshairs on its chest, and the magnification of the of your scope will actually filter out a whole bunch of the um, 
debris and anything that might be in the way. Mm-hmm. So in the case of the elk, I just put my crossers on its chest, shot. Similar situation where you're talking about where like I was like the elk just like took two steps away. I'm like dead elk, and and I was like, why isn't it going down? Why isn't it even walking away? Shoot it again, and just the configuration of everything that was around me, I couldn't shoot it again. I didn't end up getting him. I didn't end up hitting him. But when I went and reviewed what happened, when looking at the elk to distinguish if it's legal, I got a clear path to its antlers. Yep. Legal elk. And as soon as I looked below to where his chest was, there was all kinds of branches from, uh, uh, it was all burnt off willow between me and the elk. And be, but because I had transferred from my scope to my, from binoculars to my scope instantly and then dropped down into his chest area, I just filtered all of that debris in the way. Yeah. And the same thing happened to me uh, with, the, with the deer the other year. So really important to just with your naked eye, ensure that there's a clear bullet path before you switch over to your optics. It's can be, well, it can be catastrophic. It's just demonstrated. Yeah, case. yeah. So so anyway, so that was that was really disappointing. So this is funny. So this is the story. So as I'm driving down the Alaska Highway, checking in with you guys, I'm hearing your story. I'm like, oh, you had a great time. We had a like, nice visit. You know, good time to spend time with the boys. Great to get Tom back out there. And you told me the story about like your missed elk. Yeah. And I'm feeling like, well, you know, guys, you know, <laughs> you got to miss a couple elk, you know, to make it all, you know, it's like, this, this happens. You're hunting yeah. now. You've had an opportunity. Good for you guys. You had a great experience. You're coming home. You had a real intense elk opportunity. You'll know better next time, right? Yeah. In my head, I'm thinking this, and you guys led me down to this here. <laughs> yeah, strategically. Yeah, and then you lay it out for me. Yeah, tell me so that was that night we we rounded up, went back to camp, slept. Next day, uh, we had some shit weather come our way, and it was like we had a plan to float further down the river, see how far we could get. We scouted a, a spot on again on an Oxbow that we wanted to check out which was very near a spot that was uh, sort of a traumatic experience that we had the year before with yourself, with um, with some some crazy gunshots and, and whatnot fired in our direction. Oh, that was weird. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we won't get into that. But uh, so around there, we thought we'd camp again. And um, we were actually forced to camp in that area once again because of the weather. So we're floating down the river. It starts like freezing rain hail and before we know it it's snowing and and it's getting dark and we have to find a place to camp so we pull up again near this the same near spot this place the same awful spot with the before just, just yeah, like maybe a couple it. hundred yeah. yards before it yeah and we we have to pitch tent and we find a spot behind like a sandbar was, it, was that when we say nine balls of beer on the wall oh that day it yeah. was that day because it was miserable and sleeting yeah. and we had a long way to go and uh we say nine nine balls of beer on the wall which Everyone should do once. Yeah. What was it? 27 minutes of, of singing that one? Yeah, there was a long debate about how long it would take, and then we decided that we just should do it. So this was a stand-up list. Let's wrap it up. This is not... Oh, yeah. That wasn't an but So the funny one, 99 balls of beer on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyways, it's sleeting, it's hailing, and it was miserable, and we get in, and it's snowing hard, and we went and chopped down some tree with the chainsaw, and it wouldn't burn for two hours... And, you know, everyone thinks they're really good at making fires or whatever, but we legit tried. We put, like, bar oil mixed with gasoline <laughs> in a beer can, and we lit that. We eventually called it Witchwood 
because the Middle Ages, they would burn the suspected witches, and if they didn't burn, then they were witches. If they burnt, they were humans. And anyway, so it was brutal, and uh, it was a terrible night. But then the next morning... So actually, that night, Tom woke up in the middle of the night a few times, and he heard some calls, and which he told us right when we woke up in the morning, 5.30 a.m. or whatever. We woke up to three inches, four inches of snow. There were tracks around our camp, deer and elk and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, we... We had a plan again to split up. A couple of us were going to go into the oxbow behind the camp and some of us were going to, or not some of us, I was going to walk the sandbar or whatever. Um, that morning I bumped, I think, uh, a four-point mule deer, which was out of season unless I had a bow and white tail and, and some other things. And we heard a number of elk calls. We were, we were bugling along the way. And... Yeah, what what happened that afternoon? I think we really we we heard out, but we didn't know what to do because some of them were across the river. So we were trying to strategize as to like how to approach them and whatnot, and sort of made a plan for the evening. On the evening, we set up on the riverbank and we heard dozens of elk call from across the river. Dozens? Sorry, we heard dozens of elk calls from across yeah. the river dozens like literally like 50 to 100 that night every couple minutes there must have been a few elk a few bulls that were calling back to us um and uh and yeah so we set up on this riverbank and we were interacting with these elk but none of them would come down none of them would come out of the forest and cross the river to our to our side of the sandbar or or even out to the riverbank so we could shoot them so Whatever we thought the next morning, we'd set up and try the same thing. Next morning, we set up on the sandbank. We've got like four, five, six, seven hundred yards of visibility. It's fantastic. One of our guys, home crosses the river to get up behind where he thinks the elk are. And, and so we think we're set up perfectly. And we're calling and we're interacting with these elk. They're responding to all our calls, but they're not leaving their spot. So... Um, so, uh, and it's interesting because Tom, from our perspective, is very close to the elk. For us, he's within 100 yards, but we're like five or 600 yards away. And he can't hear them, but we can hear them. And when he calls, they're responding to him. And he's so close to them, but he doesn't know. <laughs> but we can hear it. And anyhow, like this goes on for like three or four hours or something in the morning. And Will and I are just, we give up on these elk because they're not leaving this area. And we, didn't, we couldn't cross the river because Tom was already crossed the river with the canoe. So we're just like, let's go into the forest because we heard elk behind us in the forest. So we're going to go after these elk. We're going to leave Tom to do his thing. So Will and I head up into uh, the oxbow. And it's quite loud. Like the wind is stopped. It's not raining. It's not snowing. Everything's crunchy. And uh, we're heading in. And, and, and I let out a bugle maybe 50 yards into this oxbow. And I get a response from back where those elk were across back behind us in the river, but it sounds closer. And I'm questioning its its proximity to me now. And anyhow, so I kind of dismiss it. Will doesn't hear it. And we go in to about 100 yards into this oxbow, and I blow out another call. And uh, I get a response back from behind us, back from like the river area. And I'm like, shh. Well, it sounds a lot closer. I should check this out. Will. 
did you hear that? He's like, no. I'm like, do you think I should go check out that, that sound? It's that, that bugle. It's like, sounds like it's a lot closer. He's like, I don't know. And I just in, instinctually was like, I got it. Cause it sounds so much closer. I've been listening to them all morning. So it felt like it was way closer. So I run back to the, to the riverbank, leave Will in the forest. And I'm up on the riverbank and I see the elk. He had just emerged out of the river. It's on my side of the river now. I'm like, whoa, this is, this is on. It's out in the open. And uh, I duck out behind a tree. And I'm like, oh, what's, what, what should I do? I don't know where the wind's blowing. And I try to get my, get everything together in my head. And I jump down off of the riverbank and try to like meet it like in, in some willow. And, and, I jump down and I run over towards this willow and it can't see me do this little like sprint that I do because it's on the other side of this little sandbar. And I'm like, what am I doing? This is crazy. This is like, he's going to see me in here or I'm not going to have a good shot. If I'm up on the bank where I just was, I'll have a better shot in case he decides to run or whatever. So I do the sprint. I realize I made a big mistake. So I sprint back to get, <laughs> to get back to where I actually was, get back to where I was. He doesn't see me. Maybe hears me. I don't know. Hide behind a tree. He comes out from behind the sandbar. He's 75 yards away and he's facing me. What did I learn the day before? Don't shoot a deer, uh, an elk or, or a deer that's facing you, um, just in case. I wait for it to go broadside. So it, it, it comes in closer. And at this point, I don't do any bugles. I'm just cow calling and I have a mouth read and I'm doing like, some sexy cow calls like drawing them on <laughs> like that kind of stuff and uh and then he's chirping nicely he's not even bugling anymore he's like he's kind of doing like his kind of sort of suave like sexy call back and coming in my direction and looking up and uh i don't know a couple minutes of that and i'm shaking so excited and i rest my gun up against a tree i'm behind a tree and Finally gives me a broadside and uh, take a shot, 50 to 75 yards, I don't know. And um, he drops to his knees and gets up instantly and does a little stumble over a log and he's down like within 10 yards of, of where I hit him. It turned out to be a, a hard shot. Um, and he was dead instantly, I think, like within a couple of seconds. Nice. Oh, shooken up. <laughs> really? Oh, man. That, that, it was like one of the most intense, in, incredible experiences I've had hunting this far. Um, it took me about an hour to come to, I think. And Yeah, I remember when we, when we came up to it, I was like, all right, time to get the knife out. Let's get, let's get to work here. We got a lot to do. And you're just like... In the zone, you were I could uh, yeah. a different plane. You were not even thinking about getting ready to do any of that. No, I spent a lot of time just like looking at all its body parts, taking photos of everything, trying to photo document like all of it. And well, it's an intense. I mean, they're an intense animal because they're so they're, they're big. Yeah, and 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 if you've had, it takes like it's so much work to get an elk on the ground, like to, to actually see an elk on the ground. Like, and you guys yeah. have put put in a few years now, like it's when it all comes together it's like holy snap you, you, you need to recognize that moment and you need to like recognize that you, you 
take it this amazing life and oh it yeah. and I went through that that those all those emotions and then some and I can't articulate all of them and um it was, man they're it huge was though it was man so they're powerful. huge when they're lying when they're on the ground there when you get up to them yeah it's something else well think I think about like the accumulation of like I said I can't articulate everything nor can you and nor can you no. but like for myself, three years of, of hunting and the hundreds of hours that we put into planning and, and all of the failed efforts in the past, but the fails, the, the failed efforts were huge learning experiences and all of that stuff isn't necessarily boiling down to just this one animal because it, it just, it carries forward and it moves like, like water through and into the future. But yeah, it was, it was like quite the heavy experience. I was just, shaken up and and so excited and so devastated and so proud and i don't know i don't have to go into this describing no, no, all no, of that yeah, stuff yeah, but like, for another episode of the well podcast what what, what, what the experience is for <laughs> killing an animal we're well over our time here so we should we should wrap it up but so but what what and then cool. we got one more uh thanks for listening to the <laughs> <Yeah>. podcast <laughs> <laughs> but the reality is, is it uh, well? I mean, that 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 you say so was you guys went on and you and you had, and you actually you you guys got a second elf on this yeah. adventure, and I mean, yeah, we're super at the time, but um, just super briefly, it was it was really great because on that second one, okay, very quickly we were it was night was coming, we were trying to find camp, uh, we saw a moose. And moose were open within certain, you know, they had to be a spike fork or they had to be a tripom or a ten point. Um, and we saw a moose, and it was a, it was a bull moose. It was probably not legal. We weren't sure. So we, you know, amateur hunters we are, uh, clamber out of the boat two hundred yards away, and I'm running through the gravel loud and whatever. In retrospect, we should have just dropped into the boat and just floated past dropped in, inside of the boat but whatever anyway so i go up climb to the top of this ridge to go find this moose and it was unsuccessful but while they were waiting for me they were just calling just for fun and they were getting callbacks from uh from elk and that was an interesting thing because on our trip when we were together on the year two you were calling we were calling as we're going down the river and we're thinking well we'll just call like blow past them and they'll call back and we'll figure out where they go but these guys didn't call until like half an hour or 40 minutes of us being stationary calling. And then they called back. Mm. And uh, so that was that was pretty key. Like you can't just, you know, drive by drive call by them call. necessarily. And so anyways, then we had this super intense experience where I, I came back to the, to, the, uh, to the boat. My brother-in-law goes in, Tom, he goes in, goes across, gets in the mix of it. And now we're hearing two elk. And these two elk are calling. Tom's in the middle and the sun's going down. And as we're calling, these two elk are calling and then they start calling each other. Yeah. So then we realized that we think we're calling, but our calling just started them calling and then they called each other in. Yeah, that's often happens. Does that often happen? Yeah, often happens. And then they're coming in, Tom's in the middle between the two of them and we're thinking Tom's going to see these two guys go at it. It ends up not happening, but they came very close to each other and we don't know what happened. So... We end up going in the corner, setting up tent in the dark, pitch dark, and and uh, whatever. Next morning, we go out, big, long hunt, 
called one elk for three hours and calling back and forth, coming in really close, then then not committing. And coming in really close and not committing. But well, the second time we were below, uh, we had the the opportunity to blow by. A, oh, a and then jet, hunters, we called in hunters. Hunters, yeah. our calls called in a jet boat that had passed by, stopped, came back, and all of a sudden we we just seen this elk walk right past us, but through a bunch of brush, we like we couldn't shoot. Jet boat stops. And these two guys start walking in the bush, our direction. We're maybe like, how far? Like 200 yards in the bush or something? We were about 200 yards in the bush. Were they they came to within. Were they, that? were they legal? The, yeah, the elk? Oh, the guys. Legal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was dude hunting season. Um, so they came in and uh, we're like, we just seen this elk like 10 minutes ago. And we're still communicating with this elk. And so we're like, I don't want to get shot by these dudes. So we start... Tommy starts going, making like ridiculous calcul like noises on the bull elk to like, be like to like like tell these guys that we're not elk, and they kept coming in after like five minutes of whistling and, and we're whistling and yelling and whatever. So, anyways, anyways, they eventually got the hint, but it took a <laughs> long time, man. They must have thought that, that was a crazy ass bull elk. In that, we pushed that bull away. But we were able to bring him back again. We after brought him like back and twenty minutes. So it was after. like three hours. Like you can really talk to these guys for a long time. Yeah, you can really talk to them. And so, anyways, that never happened. We never got him in. I think we were too aggressive. He was a satellite bull. He was smaller. I think he didn't want a big bull challenge. Like we got him pretty close with the cow calls, and we got impatient, and we started we we started using bull calls because we got impatient, and he, every time he used bull calls, he got driven away. And so, anyways, it worked out. So we were in slash and it was garbage, terrible terrain, and uh, we kept hunting and kept hunting. And it was like, what do you think, like one p.m.? Yeah, yeah. And we was. got all of a sudden we we got a callback that was a totally different knock, and it was huge sounding. And we were coming back and forth. We get in, and, and everything changed. You ever go like an elk kingdom, like a? You're in a bunch of garbage, and then you enter this area, and all of a sudden, like it opens up, and it's like mossy, and it's beautiful. It's mossy, beautiful. There's rubs everywhere. There's rubs everywhere, yeah, and it's yeah. always like it's like this is if I was like a majestic elk, like I it's would great, come to this great views everywhere. Yeah, I yeah, really yeah. great spot. And so we entered, we entered like the elk kingdom <laughs> of this king elk or whatever, and uh, and man, when Tom Blue, he would scream like within one second of him starting. Like he, we wouldn't even finish, and he would, be, yeah, like yeah. immediately, and he came in so fast and so hard, and um, and all three of us were together, and I think that that was really what ties this whole experience and like this whole like story for me together was the fact that we were all together, you know, having that first year of just lost everything together to being all together lined up, and uh, this all came in and. Uh, Basically, we all just opened fire on it, <laughs> and and we put it down really quick, and and we were all we were like standing abreast, like six feet apart from each other, the three of us, and and it's been this be the first beautiful area we'd seen all morning, going through a bunch of garbage, and and so that was really great. We we uh, by the time we went up to it, it was a, it was a big beautiful elk, and and. Um, yeah, so that I think that was like sort of the the arc, and it was great to be there all together. And the year two, we made it down the river without flipping. And year three, we came back with our with our two elk. It was a bit of a beat back to the boat. Yeah, so um, that's a note that, that we didn't really highlight is 
the first elk on day two that we harvested was 200 meters from camp. Yeah. Just down the beach. Yeah, just on the beach. And this one was maybe two kilom- three kilometers away as, a, as the crow flies, but we had to trudge it out, of the, well, pull it out of the forest. It was a nine-hour job, I think, from, from putting the bull down to bringing it back to camp. Getting out of the woods to the to the beach, portaging it, portaging the boat actually up to where we put the meat on the beach, and then floating the meat back down to camp yeah. with three or four hikes back into to get all the meat, hundreds of pounds of meat on our backs. We'd never done that before. It was incredibly rewarding, and incredibly you painful. Have you guys at Dudley Weld uh, Butcher Workshop? Let me show you guys how to do that. Oh yeah, in the forest, yeah. Oh yes, it's gonna come tomorrow night. <laughs> oh really? Cool. Yeah. Um, I'm a I'm a big uh, I hate boning out I hate boning out quarters. How often do you bone out elk quarters? I don't. I don't. I, I don't want to because every time you take a bone out of uh, out of a big chunk of meat, like you know, uh, particularly the ham, like the dime, like like you're just exposing so much meat to bacteria. Yeah. I always eat the bone in. And it's also that, more ergonomic on your back when you're carrying yeah, absolutely. it. Absolutely. I don't think you need to do it. I mean, maybe on a moose, like on a, on a size large moose, you would have to take the bone out. Or, you, or just you, you, you would cut the outside round off of it or something just to, to separate the muscle groups so you have, you're down to 100 pounds. Like, mm. But like on an elk, even on a, on a mature bull elk, the biggest elk we ever shot, it's 90 pounds for that, that hindquarter. And, that, and that's the heaviest piece of an elk. So we typically do six lo- five or six loads of an elk, averaging 80 pounds a load on, on most of the elk that we shoot. So on a moose though, like yeah, you definitely have a hind quarter. If you if you take it off the, if you take it up with the pelvis, it could be over hundred pounds, and that's almost it's unbearable mm-hmm. to pack it. So anyways, we are moving on to other interesting things to talk about, which is pack of meat, which we'll do for another day yep. on the Eat Well podcast. But I thought it was cool just to be able to like had you guys over here for dinner tonight. Just to, I, I wanted to hear the story of you guys as elk hunt uh, in detail, and and I thought it'd be fun to to hear it over the course of a podcast, and hopefully other people will enjoy it and learn a couple things about elk hunting and take a few snippets from from you guys' experience. But all in all, I like as as friends and buddies and as new hunters. I mean, you guys have really demonstrated all the things it takes to become successful hunters. I mean. You know, starting with a tip on, on on an area that might be good, and then actually going out there and, and um, you know getting your shit together to get down into it into an area, exploring it, figuring it out, and then going back year over year because that's really what it takes to be a successful hunter. It's like you got you got to go there, you got to figure it out. It takes a few years to figure it out. You got to expose yourself to the area and develop techniques to, to hunt in that particular area successfully, and then year over year, like now you guys will be able to replicate that hunt year over year and probably come home with an elk. You know, there's, there's always going to be years where, you know, weather conditions, environmental conditions, um, populations are not in your favor, but by and large, you guys have figured something out. So I think that's really cool. And I appreciate you guys sharing the story on the, on the podcast. And anyways, thanks for that. And we'll sign off here and have a drink and say goodnight. Right. All right. Okay. Good night, nice, Dylan. Awesome. Right. Thank you.